0: Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge.
1: Welcome everybody to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. I'm getting ahead of myself in my head, and if you weren't with us last week, shame on you. But more importantly, as you just heard Carrie say, the unofficial voice of the Digital 410 Network, the one and the only Henry Sledge is now a full-time member and host of the What's the Up podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. Our muster has gotten larger. And joining us tonight, uh, we'll get to in a second, because I'm going to let Jeff introduce him. But Jeff, you weren't here for last week. Um, we, we kind of premiered a new segment, if you will, and right now I'm going to follow it up with another reading of... Uh, by one and only Henry Sledge from his father's book, With the Old Breed. And here we go.
0: Our attack was called off late in the afternoon, and we were ordered to set up our mortar for the night. An NCO came by and told me to go with him and about four others from other platoons to unload an Amtrak bringing up supplies for Company K. We arrived at the designated place, dispersed a little so as to not draw fire, and waited for the Amtrak. In a few minutes, it came clanking up in a swirl of white dust. You guys from K Company, 5th Marines? Asked the driver. Yeah, you got chow and ammo for us? Asked our NCO. Yeah, sure have. Got a unit of fire, water, and rations. Better get it unloaded as soon as you can or we'll draw fire, the driver said as his machine lurched to a halt and he climbed down. The tractor was an older model, such as I had landed from on D-Day. It didn't have a drop tailgate, so we climbed aboard and hefted the heavy ammo boxes over the side and down onto the deck. Let's go, boys, our NCO said as he and a couple of us climbed onto the tractor. I saw him gaze in amazement down into the cargo area of the tractor. At the bottom, wedged under a pile of ammo boxes, we saw one of those infernal 55-gallon oil drums of water. Filled, they weighed several hundred pounds. Our NCO rested his arms on the side of the tractor and remarked in an exasperated tone, It took a bloody genius of a supply officer to do that. How in the hell are we supposed to get that drum out of there? So how are you guys doing tonight? Good. Fantastic.
2: That was that was great. Yeah, shame on me for not being here last week. Your did you? Last episode, uh, man.
3: Did
1: you hear yes, the one? That, was, that, was, that must, must have been, been a good one last week. Did you hear the one from last week? Should I play it? We got time, right? We're not in a big hurry. Do it. Here we go. It's a quick um, minute and thirty-eight seconds.
0: Our artillery was called in, but our mortars could fire only to the front of the company and not on the left flank area because that was in the area of the first Marines. The Japanese observers on the ridge had a clear, unobstructed view of us. Their artillery shells whined and shrieked, accompanied by the deadly whispering of the mortar shells. Enemy fire grew more intense until we were pinned down. We were getting the first bitter taste of Bloody Nose Ridge, and we had increasing compassion for the first Marines on our left who were battering squarely into it. When the enemy ceased firing artillery and mortars from caves, they shut protective steel doors and waited while our artillery, naval guns, and 81 mm mortars blasted away at the rock. If we moved ahead under our protective fire support, the Japanese pinned us down and inflicted serious losses on us because it was almost impossible to dig a protective foxhole in the rock. No individual events of the attack stuck in my mind. Just the severe fire from our left, and the feeling that any time the Japanese decided to do so, they could have blown us sky high.
1: Fantastic job on those, Henry. Doing a great job on those. We got plenty more coming, too. Addition. So, Jeff, now your time to shine. I'm very excited to announce, Jeff has a very uh, interesting uh, guest on tonight. So take it away, fella.
2: Yeah, well, so uh, his name is Mr. Mike Weigel. He's a good friend of mine now. We, we met oh, a year or so ago. We are both shameless wine hosts, And we met out here in Burnett, where I live, at the beautiful Seven Creeks Vineyards. And Mike is one of those guys that I don't think he's ever met a stranger. Uh, if he's there, you walk into the vineyard, you're going to get bear hug. You're going to get introduced to 20 people. It's like, you've known him your whole life. And before I let him introduce himself, I want him to tell a quick story because he is the only person I think I will ever meet that actually has his own sushi roll named after him.
1: So I, (laughs) I I had a hot dog named after me, but not a sushi roll. I'm intrigued.
3: That's true. It's at uh, Sushi Fever in uh, Cedar Park, Texas. Um, actually, he he came from Las Vegas, uh, and I w- I went in there. It had the same name. I was about to chew out whoever came out to Cedar Park and and dared use that same name, but uh, it was the same guy. And uh, I just sat up there. That he had a chef named Mario, and I would just sit up there on lunch breaks or with customers and just say, "Make me whatever." And one day he made this awesome roll, And I said, don't forget that one. So uh took about a year, his wife, Amy would uh, not give me the name. She refused to to have a, a role called Mike roll on their menu. <laughs> um, but I, again, you know, all those strangers that I know, I told him all about it. And it became so popular. He, d- he just couldn't not do it. So after right. about a year, his wife, I came in there one day, and she said, Look, what we have up on the board. And there it is on the menu and up on the specials. I've, <laughs> I've got a mic roll. I think the they. Roll.
1: I think they missed out on the better opportunity, which would have been the Weigel roll, or the Weigel roll, the
3: Weigel roll. There we go. Roll. <laughs> Nobody would have been able to pronounce it.
1: <laughs> there you go. Except,
3: except the Germans.
2: <laughs> well, what do you have for us tonight, Mike? I- I'm really excited. Of course, I already know, but uh, this is this is something special. This really is.
3: Okay. Um So the man that we're gonna be talking about is my grandpa. Uh, His name is Thomas Leander Colburn, uh, TLC. He's a Catholic from Denver, Colorado, born in 1924, December 18th, and left us on December 25th, 2015. So 91 years old, went out on Christmas, like only he would. Uh, Army Master Sergeant, E8, U.S. Army, world war ii um i can show you a picture of him real quick so everybody knows who we're talking about here this is what he's going to look like
0: Ooh, and he was 18 good. when
3: he joined and they called him dusty face because he he was a tank driver uh apparently they they all got the dusty faces
1: yeah, the um, the wind s- the little slot on the front of the tank, they would just yeah get that dust all over their face. and got their early football helmets on and their little grease guns. Those grease yep. guns are so cool.
3: Yep. Um, so I think probably, I mean, obviously, like lots of people in World War II, he's he's got a ton of stories. Um, <clears throat> our heritage is uh, his grandpa moved from New York to Colorado specifically Idaho Springs. Um, he was a miner, a prominent miner. Uh, the big house in the middle of Idaho Springs has a big plaque on the front. It's, it's his. Um, his name was Cyrus Colburn. Um, so he, we're, we're descendants of miners from Colorado, basically. Um, but this story, mo- mostly I think what Jeff wants to see is the pictures I showed him Um, And that story is, um, I'll I'll read to you what my my grandpa has at the beginning of these pictures. Uh, He says, we drove our tanks into Nuremberg Stadium, lined our tanks up and made a motor pool out of the area. As I jumped down from my front fender, I noticed that there were a bunch of photographs blowing around. After checking them out, I discovered that they were pictures of Hitler and all his gang. So I stuffed some in my tank and eventually brought some home. Hmm. My mother took them to Ford Optical on 16th and Broadway. The man said that they should be put on professional negative film, which he did and made some prints. And that's how all these copies that I'm going to show you uh, were made.
1: And so your family Uh, still has the negatives too?
3: Yes. That's awesome. So my, my aunts are really big into, um, history and lineage. So, uh, between the four, four girls, they have all the pictures and all the stuff. Um, all the cousins were also extremely interested in, to, in it. Uh, it spread around to all the people that were, were interested. Uh, I was the second oldest of the cousins, so I, I got a lot of the stuff. Um, a lot of his pipe collection, a lot of his stuff out of his den, some swords from some from Germany that he took from the Nazis. I'll have hmm. to tell you guys about that some other time. Um, and then also some of these pictures. So um, I can show you these and...
1: Do you know off the top of your head, before you show us the photos, when he enlisted or was he drafted? What years did he serve through? Was he there the duration? Was he there from like 44 to 45 off the top of your head?
3: Yeah. So I looked at that and I actually was going to get that information for you and didn't. Um, But I know basically that uh, I have a story that he was saying where he was in basic training at the end of 44, I believe, beginning of 45 and then went out there. Um, so I think he was there mostly in 45. Makes sense. Yep. Yeah. He was part of, uh, general Patton's tank army. So when he landed, they, they drove the tanks, you know, all the way across Europe and then, uh, ended in Nuremberg. And also if you guys know the story of camp Dora, um, one of the worst Jewish concentration camps that was kind of towards the end of his, uh, career there. which pretty good story there too, since we're from Texas, Jeff and I are from Texas. So um, if you, there's a book called The, the Search for Private Galleon. And he, w- he was a French guy um, in the U.S. Army and uh, got into some trouble around Camp Dora at a, at a uh, city and ended up punching one of the, the German higher-ups. Uh, they weren't supposed to be in town. Well, he ran out of town the wrong way and followed some railroad tracks and found found Camp Dora where the the X-1 rocket was. And that's kind of the story how we beat the Russians to the the missile.
1: Yeah, if Patton had his way. you uh, they would have went on into Russia right after the war, but uh, yeah. they put a squash yeah. on that, sadly. Yep. Yep. For let's, sure. Let's see some of those photos. All right, so you brought him up with the Nazi
3: stormtroopers. So Ernst I believe it's, uh, is it Ream or Rome um, was the head of that. So I'll show him to you first. Sure. Take this background off cause it won't, won't show you otherwise.
1: Wow. That's a great, like, what is that? Like an 18 by 10? That's a great black and white photo. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Uh, eight by 10. Yeah. Eight by 10. But we have the, um, negatives too. So we could probably get better. I've shown these a lot, so yeah. uh, Apparently, uh,
1: Hitler had this guy killed. What does that say on the bottom on this date? You have like a news clipping or something, don't
3: there? Yep. It it says um, Adolf Hitler began his blood purge of political and military leaders in Germany. Among those killed was Ernst Röhm, leader of the Nazi stormtroopers, and Hitler's one-time ally. Wow. All right. This is going to be Hermann Göring and Julius Streicher.
1: Wow. Basically, it looks like. And yeah, what makes
2: these so interesting, too, is you know this is like obviously not posed; these are just candid shots of these guys, and you know something you are not going to find probably anywhere else.
1: Yeah, nope. For, for those of you listening um, on the live on the uh, audio version on Monday morning, uh, we'll have some of these photos up on the website later on this week over at wtspworldwar dot But for those of you listening, that last photo, it's like they're at a uh, propaganda event. Looks like they're either. Um, talking to Germans or to troops. The the camera angle don't show who they're talking to, but you can kind of tell they're up on a podium and one of them's throwing up the Heil Hitler salute and the other one's standing next to them. And it's like a sight, like Jeff was saying, it's not a posed propaganda photo. It's like the photographer was standing on the stage right or stage left taking photos from off Mm -hmm. behind wherever they were, the podium they were were doing their announcements from.
3: And I I think that would be this is the same stage. Okay. And this is actually of Hitler.
1: Yeah. They're like in a stadium. Yep. A big arena. Yeah. That's crazy. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, It's so, it's so cool that the, um, developer had the state of mind of, um, taking those prints, taking them to the dark room and, and creating negatives for them. So that, you know, obviously, uh, photos that are 80 years old, you know, you can just print new copies as they start to uh, get dog-eared and wrinkled and everything else. That's so it's great that they had the the presence of mind to create new um, negatives from those, those prints.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, and I think my grandpa kind of knew the, I mean, obviously, the secrecy of that and, and having those. He actually built his own dark room in the basement. So he, he was able to to make prints himself and, and look at all of that in his basement.
1: Yeah, sadly, I, I spent eight semesters of high school doing black and white photography, and now we got digital cameras. So that was a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> they, don't,
3: they don't look as good.
1: No, they don't. But, you know, every, I, I do computers for veterinarian clinics, and every once in a while i walk into one that they have the digital x-rays, but they still have some of their equipment they haven't taken out. And they would develop the x-rays with the same stop bath fix and developer that we would in black and white photography. And so I'll walk in these rooms and that fix or developer scent is just melted in the wall and I'll have flashbacks going back to 1996 when I'm like in photography class in high school. It's just so weird how smells, a particular smell can just take you back 25 years. It's insane. They say that's the
0: most powerful recall.
1: That music, I think that's why they play music for Alzheimer's patients. Really? To help recall memories from the past. Because, well, plus with Alzheimer's, it seems to affect their short-term memory. Well, no, their long-term memory, too. But, yeah, they'll play music and uh, do recalls. You have any other photos there, Mike?
3: Oh, yeah. I got plenty. Um, so, this is going to be Julius Stryker again. Um, he's got a couple couple horses there. It looks like they're in town somewhere. Yeah. Got, got some kids behind them. Soldiers. Who,
2: who, was, who was Julius Stryker? What, what was That's his...
3: Pretty sure that was his right hand man. That was like, he was always in the car with them. Um, always on Hitler's right side. Okay. Uh, might have to do some history on that.
1: I'm looking it up uh, now. If you want to go ahead and to your next yeah. photo, Here,
3: here's a really poignant one for you.
0: Yeah. That could be on the cover of a book. <clears throat> yeah. That, that, that looks like he's striking one of his famous poses.
1: Yeah, for those you listen to the audio version, it's basically Adolf Hitler standing about three feet back from four microphones up on the same pedestal in that same arena. It almost looks like where they held the Olympics. Don't that look very reminiscent of the nineteen thirty nine Olympics?
3: It does. Is would
0: that be the Zeppelin Strasse in Nuremberg? Quite possibly.
3: Possibly. I mean that's where he found these.
1: I'm just sadly most of the stuff I pull up on him is going to reference the Nuremberg Trials, and so I'm not going to be able to give you a quick Wikipedia definition of who he was and what he did. Um,
3: I know Herman Göring was definitely his yeah. right hand man as well, which I've got some pictures of him too. Um, this is going to be—I'm not sure who the guy in the black—that might just be somebody pouring them them a drink. Uh, But there's some interesting stuff on their uh, clothing. But this is uh, Reem, the guy that's head of the Nazi stormtroopers.
1: Those are amazing photos.
3: Here's here's Goring.
1: Yeah, he actually has his um, sword on that you were making reference to earlier.
3: Yep. Yeah, I don't have that in the house, or I'd show it to you. Maybe I'll send you a picture of it that you can add. But I, I have one off of one of the uh, soldiers that my grandpa got.
1: Wait a minute, what what arena did you say your that he was in the Nuremberg arena? Yep. I wonder if that's where those photos. It would make sense that that's where those photos were taken.
3: Yep, that's what I'm guessing.
1: Yeah, so that would definitely make sense.
3: Uh, this, this is another one, uh, just a candid picture of Hitler, kind of in the background there.
1: Yeah, he's like, um, reviewing the troops.
3: Yep. And I'm not sure what kind of soldier that is in all the black that might be part of their stormtroopers.
1: Okay. Let's see here. Julius Streicher, February 12th, 1885 to 16th of October, 1946 was a member of the Nazi party. Um, the German word that stands for regional leader. A member of the Reichstag, national legislator, he was um, the founder and publisher of uh, the newspaper Der Stürmer, which became a central element of the Nazi propaganda machine. The publishing firm was financially very successful and made a striker, a multimillionaire, and that's a multimillionaire 1940s era. Era, so that's a lot of money. Now, at the end of the war, Stryker was convicted by crimes against humanity in the Nuremberg Trials. Good. And was executed. Fantastic. Stryker was Shoot. first member of the Nazi regime held accountable for inciting genocide by the Nuremberg Tribunal. So he was definitely a blank of all large caliber. Um, let's see here. Born, blah, blah, blah. Nine children of a teacher. I'm sure his mom was proud. Um, he worked in elementary school. His father, uh, he worked at the elementary school. His father had 1913. Stryker married some other chick. A baker's daughter, Nuremberg. They had two sons, yada, yada, yada. But yeah, um, I'll include the link to his Wikipedia page. It took me a while to figure out the correct German spelling. That's what took so long. So uh, for this episode, head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com and I will include the uh, link to the uh, in-depth Wikipedia on Mr. Stryker
3: um this this is definitely the stadium it's it's marked as nuremberg stadium but (laughs) that podium looks a little different from what we were looking at earlier
1: sure well they may have had them up on a riser so they can get a little higher up because there's a lot of people there and just imagine i mean in, in 1939 1940s technology of pa systems which weren't that great um in a place that large with that much marble. I'm sure it was quite hard for the people in the crowd to understand exactly what was going on. <laughs> a lot of echoing.
3: Absolutely. Here's a salute from Adolf Hitler out of his car.
1: Oh uh, yeah, that's the uh was uh, was that a Rolls-Royce? I can't remember. It looks
2: nah, like Rolls- It looks like the horse or uh um,
1: No, it's a Mercedes. It's got the yeah, Mercedes it looks like logo. a Mercedes to me. Yeah, I forget what they Excuse. called that thing. Yeah, that's it. Yep, it's a Mercedes. You got the uh, cat with the SS behind him. See, some of those, some of those other guys, they're they're. Wait a minute, Mike. Mike, what? don't
2: you drive a Mercedes?
1: <laughs> hey, to the victors go the spoils. I have a Volkswagen <laughs> and a Toyota, so to the victors goes the spoils. No, yes. I was gonna say if you hold that photo back up. I noticed this in some of the other ones. Doesn't the headgear on the guy in f- to the front and to the back of the car almost look like a French-style headgear of the French uniforms? you talking about this guy? Yeah. No, not the helmet. That's clearly German. But the guy the in the back. looks like a kepi. Yeah, they almost look like French keppies. It's crazy. Probably had a lot of familiar, similar uniforms back then, I would assume. That's Goring there in a white, ain't it? Yep. Yeah, I wonder who that photographer was. He clearly had, like, more than just Clarence. He was almost like a... (laughs) He's probably, like, an official member of their propaganda machine. Because, I mean, he he was just there. Here's Stryker and Goring together. And on... The microphone stand. You can kind yeah. of see the call letters of the radio station. It says T-E-K-A-D-E. So D-E is Deutschland. What was it again? T-E? T-E. Tango Echo.
3: Kilo. Oh, four. Number four. And then D-E. Delta Echo.
1: Yeah, just interesting. Oh, <clears throat> It, it's crazy to you know it's crazy to think that he was able to capture so many photos i mean that's more than just a, a handful <laughs> he had to cram them in his tank underneath the seat or somewhere but you know you see things like that and you're just so grateful that people think to preserve history and, and to him it,
3: absolutely
1: you know and to him it really wasn't history it was you know happening right now but he had the foresight to think this will be valuable, not monetarily, well, possibly monetarily, but historically valuable in the future. Mm -hmm. And it's so crazy to see unpublished photos like these. Mm
3: -hmm. There's the kind of uh, equipment they were using.
1: Yeah. So there's a photographer who's taken a photo op. We're going to say stage, right. And then our embedded photographer stage left. And so everybody's got their heads away from him looking at the other photographer and he's kind of taking a picture of them, getting their picture taken. Mm
0: hmm.
1: Those are crazy,
3: and there's a plane in the back of this one, Jeff. Don't get too excited.
0: <laughs> Not sure what kind. Ju fifty
1: two, isn't it? No, what's the ones Is they it would use? on in... to
0: you, Jeff.
1: It looks like uh,
2: the. I, I couldn't get a good enough glimpse of it. It,
1: it kind of looks if like if the... It's a tri
0: motor. It's probably a Ju fifty two. Oh, oh yeah, uh, yeah, I would go with that yeah it's hard to tell though yeah, yeah. it does
1: i just googled ju-52 and i'm i was gonna say it kind of looks like the planes you would see in indiana jones when the nazis or the germans were flying yeah it looks like ju-52 yeah. <laughs> um
3: let's see so in addition he he was also there with his brothers um when they got back this was them in the denver post
1: nice um
3: that's my grandpa right there but him and his brothers came back and then um, went back to the mines.
1: Yeah, it was so cool back then how the local papers would do write-ups on the people from their towns, and obviously Henry knew a lot about that because you know his some of the stories, you know, news stories about his father. But one of the things that um, in that Dick Winters Hang Tough book, he made references in his letters or when Dietta wrote him about how. In Pennsylvania, they would do news stories on him and his exploits. And so it was, it's was really cool how, like, back then the small towns were so small that you if you're in a position of a dick winners or, you know, you came back, you could kind of become a local celebrity because you're commanding a, a you know, a group of guys who's doing all these things over in Europe. And it gets put on the wire and then the local news turns it into the local, you know, local boy done good. And so it's really cool that they did that back then. Yep. Yeah, you know that, that
2: still
3: exists in small towns today. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I kept all the, the rated R ones out of here, but um this is kind of what some of the places they would come up to when they were taking their pictures after they would take over the, the town or whatever. Just be you know, dead bodies everywhere. Yeah. And I'll leave the I have a whole bunch of concentration camp ones, but we'll we'll leave them off the uh, this one
1: yeah we wouldn't want youtube to take us to kill our live stream (laughs) well i appreciate you sharing those uh photos with us those are fantastic i like us and uh that's just super awesome um you have any more are you are you good um
3: of of that stuff that's it for that
1: cool well you're more than welcome to hang out for the rest of the show and then uh you know contribute to the conversation or, uh, you know, crack wise, do whatever you want to do. And, um, I know Jeff and, uh, Henry have a, I think you guys want to do some air Corps stuff, but real quick before we continue on the ETO talk last week, I talked about the book, um, about the Marine Raiders and we were talking about, Hey guys, you ever read a book and see them mention another book and you go out and buy that book. And of course we all said, yes, I got this in the mail. <laughs> Don't mind my toilet paper, uh, bookmark, but, um, and that, In that book by the Marine Raiders, they kept making references to Samuel Griffith II. And so I quickly Googled his book, and he put out this book called The Battle for Guadalcanal. And this book covers everything from the Air Corps' contribution to the Navy's contribution and obviously the Marine Corps. It really gets into the fact of how Guadalcanal was put together at the last minute on shoestring, how they had no maps of anything. They basically got as many people who used to work on the coconut plantation, sailors, whatever, it provide as much information. I think they actually went to old books that had maps. But anyhow, um, two things that's very cool, kind of sad but cool, Um, this book has barcodes all over it, and on the opening cover, it has uh, Yeshiva University, the libraries, Uh, this is from the uh, Siegfried Stern Library, it's got their college library logo on it, of course you can't see it because my WTSP wallpaper. But um, this is probably more of a uh, throwback for Henry and I. Check us out, Henry. It actually has the checkout card in the back that we'd all fill out. <laughs> yeah. Showing that we checked out the book. Did you stamp it? Yeah, they put a brand new one in here. Sadly, you can't see the history of the people. Um, this was published in 1954. Now... I learned something cool and I'm only on like chapter two. We're all familiar with John McCain's contributions to uh, Vietnam, right? Right. <laughs> Do you know anything about his father? Yeah, he was
0: Admiral Fifth Fleet, was he not?
1: I was reading his book and it kept... Was that his grandfather? That was his father, interestingly okay. enough. I was reading his book and I kept saying John McCain. And I'm like, wait a minute, John McCain's in Vietnam. So I quickly looked. John Sidney slew McCain, August... 9th, 1884 to September 6, 1945. If you're doing the math, yes, he passed away shortly after the surrender. Was a U.S. Navy admiral um, and um sorry, U.S. Navy Admiral, he served command assignments during a Pacific War campaign. McCain was a pioneer of aircraft carrier operations, serving in the Pacific Theater World War II. In 1942, he commanded the land-based air operations in support of the Guadalcanal campaign. So he was responsible for the logistics, getting a hold of as much of the airplanes as he could, putting it together, calling in all the basic air um, operations over Guadalcanal. And in 1945, he aggressively led a fast carrier task force. His operations off the Philippine and Okinawa and airstrikes against the Japanese home island caused tremendous destruction, uh, the Japanese Naval and Air Force's closing period of the war he died four days after the formal japanese surrender and it's and i think john mccain was born in like 43 or 39 and it's just amazing that john mccain his son would go on to do all the vietnam navy exploits that his father kind of started even though he really didn't have that much interaction because his dad died in 45 And so it's just, it's always crazy to me that people that we hear about, you know, and the impact they had on history and the fact that he was like trying to put together a logistics air operations for Guadalcanal is everybody struggling to get gear, equipment, men, logistics and everything. And it's just, so this is a great book and I'm like early into it. So if you guys listening are into Guadalcanal, here's another great book. It was published in 1953, the battle for Guadalcanal. And Cool thing about this is, is um, Samuel reached out and got some, um, obviously through interpreters, but he actually got contributions for his book from Japanese military leaders who served on Guadalcanal in those areas. So when he's giving facts about troop movements on the Japanese side, he not only got that from reports, but he got that from first-hand accounts from the people who were there serving on the Japanese side. So it's a pretty in-depth book. And um so that's another one to check out. And uh what are you guys wanting to talk about tonight, Jeff or Henry?
2: Yeah, well uh Don you'll you'll appreciate this. Uh I got a few things added to my collection here in the past uh couple days, I guess. Sure. Uh I got i am sure y'all are familiar with the green hardcover US Army and World War Two uh books.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I have no idea how many is in in this in the whole series. I had two of them. Uh, one of them being Guadalcanal, the first offensive. Uh, as a kid, I was obsessed with Guadalcanal. And um, I just inherited six, uh, Battle of the Bulge, Mediterranean Theater, one on War in the Pacific, the, first, the fall of the Philippines. I haven't even been able to thumb through them. But these are the uh, ones that were printed more like in the 50s. Yeah. Uh, the one I bought was much newer, so th- these are these are pretty old, and and they have the old library. They came out of the library years and years ago. Were withdrawn, and mm-hmm. you know they still have the library cards in them as well. It
1: kind of hurts uh, my it hurts my heart. This one a, actually had uh, not to interrupt you, but on that point, um, it hurts my heart. This one has a discard stamp on it. It's like oh, yeah, to be discarded.
2: That's okay. Yeah, you know, got it's my hands discarded from a library, but you know now it's found a new home. Sure. Um, so, and yeah, then I came across uh, oh, about a half dozen uh, cameras like new. Wow. Probably most of them from the early 50s Kodak, Argus, uh, a couple Bell and Howells, um, a Bell and Howell projector that still works pristine. Um, couldn't get the lid open <laughs> and uh, finally finally got into it, and it is it is like new. Uh, and with the one Argus, three boxes of the original flashbulbs.
1: Wow! So
2: that was a yeah, that was a, that was a pretty cool find. And I've got yeah, there's some friends, some reenactor friends. I think I'm going to give a couple to you know some of the girls that do photojournalism, World to you know female journalists, things like that. And I'll keep one or two. You know, my wife wants to keep one or two, and and probably leave the the rest at the at the museum uh, uh, here in Burnett, which I'd like to. Shamelessly plug real quick. That yeah, please we are go ahead. Six days away from our public program for kids, we're calling it Pumpkins and Paratroopers. So, it's <laughs> yeah, seasonal if we, I like it. <laughs> yeah. So, if we have any local listeners, um, uh, basically, it's it's you know we we uh, we we did our summer program, which was our Wine and Wings, that we in, included our our local uh, winery here that that Mike and I enjoy so much. And I wanted to do something for the kiddos in the fall, so we decided to do a pumpkin decorating contest. We've got uh, one of the greatest grocery stores in the country, probably one of the best corporations to work for in the country, HEB, donated 100 pumpkins to me. Wow. And we had some local um, art teachers and some other folks uh, involved with the school system that are donating all the paints and the tablecloths and a wash station. And we've got a shaved ice truck that's going to come out. I've got a buddy that uh, owns a BRDM, a modern armored vehicle. He's going to bring that out for kids to play in. And we're just going to set up for two hours out in our static aircraft uh, field out, outside the museum there, out by the, the highway. And I'm expecting, I'm, I'm hoping to have 100 kids. We kind of paired with our local library that has a huge following uh, for the children because of their children, you know, story time and their summer programs and everything. So they've been really helping us advertise hard, and it's been uh, kind of a uh, blending all of this stuff together because this past Tuesday um, I was uh, unanimously voted to be on the executive board for, <laughs> for this library. Hopefully I can do them some good. Um, so we're just kind of getting this community involvement between the historical aspect of our library, the programs that they do. It's more than just a, a big old building full of books. And of course, our museum uh, here in Burnet that's trying to keep history alive. And we're going to have some reenactors. Of course, a couple guys dressed as paratroopers, uh, so I can get away with that catchy title where people aren't let down. <laughs>
1: we're and then we're going to carve, jack lanterns, with, the then we're gonna carve <laughs> jack lanterns with. Then we're going to carve jack lanterns with uh, fighting knives.
2: <laughs> <laughs> there you
3: go. Yeah. I've got to come uh, see this uh, BRDM. That's going to be pretty cool
2: yeah yeah it's the same guy that, that he's got a delorean as well that he brings out he's had a few other military vehicles in the collection that have come and gone so yeah yeah make sure you come on out mike uh but now sticking sticking with uh pto i know i know sledge uh, hammer here will, will enjoy this i've got to talk to him when i first picked this book up uh i don't know maybe two weeks ago it's it's done i mean i, I read it that quick it was and i'm not a quick reader um i thought it was really good and, and it's one of those books that it's just a pretty good account. If you want to just know the basic stuff about Paleylu, if you if you kind of want to know a, a little bit about men like Sledge and Snafu and Bergen uh, and Haldane, um, it, it, there's probably, uh, I don't know how many inaccuracies there are. I picked up on a couple pretty blatant ones. Yeah. So, of course, you know, that kind of, usually that turns me off. I mean, sometimes it's more of a, it's 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 not even really the author's fault, you know, to me, sometimes they just kind of get something in editing, things kind of get a little out of uh, chronological order. Um, they, they actually, there's a mistake where they instead of September 16th, it says December 16th at one point. But other than that, you know, and, and I know uh, Henry can probably shed a little bit more light because he's more familiar with the book and the author. But. You Know overall, not to pick anything apart. Overall, I thought it was a really good, um, just, just kind of an, an all encompassing. If you want to know a little bit about what Paley was like, I think this guy does a pretty good job, um, at least shedding light to what what it was like and, and the way K35 just got so stretched out. These guys just got just, I mean, put through the ringer. Um, you know, I don't know if everything when he quotes henry's dad if it's 100 percent correct or if snafu would have said something like that that i'm not familiar with but i think it's it's a it's a really good book it was a quick read for me um and uh i just wanted to kind of do that in our little in our little book review and um i picked this one up this morning uh dumb but lucky written by this guy richard uh, k curtis this came out of the collection from our local p-51 pilot that we had here that Unfortunately, crashed a couple years ago. I inherited a uh, couple hundred of, of his books from his collection and, and some other aviation uh, curios and relics, things like that. And um, I- I'm excited to finish this one because I do want to plug before I turn it over to Henry that I think we're all in agreement that, you know, we're coming up on our hundredth episode. of course that's a hundred episodes for Don. (laughs) That's not necessarily a hundred for Henry. It's a hundred for the, Uh,
1: what's the scuttlebutt podcast. I think this is going to be up to 94 that we're on right now. So yeah, we, we quickly have a hundred coming our way.
2: Yeah, we're getting close and and we're really gaining a lot of steam with all of the, uh, the material that we're putting together and the, and these guests that we're coming across. Uh, and so for our listeners to kind of wet the appetite, uh, I, I suggested that we kind of do a little bit of a tribute for our hundredth, uh, episode. We do a little bit of a tribute, uh, tribute to the hundredth bomb group. Uh, cause Henry and I are just, you know, we're mighty eighth air force nuts and we're going to oh, yeah. bring Don, we're going to get Don over here on the dark side. I know he got to dress up all Memphis bell style once or twice, but, <laughs> um, it's fun talking about ETO and it's fun, uh, you know, especially for Henry and I, uh, to, that go back and talk about some of the things that, uh, you know, the same books we've read and the same movies we've seen. And, and, uh, so I'm looking forward to that. And if that idea sticks, I'm really looking forward to that. And I hope our listeners will engage. Um, I'd love to hear from some of them ahead of time. Some of the things yeah. that they'd like for us to talk about.
1: Yeah. And please, uh, if you guys have questions, comments, uh, concerns, please email us at mail call at WTSP world war com. And before you segue off that, cause you, you mentioned something about that book, how, there may have been some editorial inaccuracies and I would be remiss um, when I posted last week's episode, um, about how I was talking about how great the book, um, the, the, uh, the Marine Raiders was, um, a listener, not only a listener, but a ge- former guest of the show. Who's actually been to Pell, uh, Guadal- uh, been to Peleliu reached out to me and said, Hey, that book was written from the 30 miles away and had some editorial stuff. And I quickly said, well, I'd like to see some of the, and he did, he sent me a screenshot, very first page. And this is something I didn't even notice, but chapter one, the factory guard, December 15th, 1942, December 15th, 1942, halfway down the paragraph. It says, um, it had only been a few days since the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, which obviously would have been December 15th, 1941, but interestingly enough, when I started reading this book, December 15th, 1942 was when they had the meeting that the idea for the Raiders was hatched. So I think the editorial person, the person editing the book put night, December 15th, 1942, cause it was probably a date that they were supposed to put earlier, but go ahead, Jeff.
2: Well, uh- Maybe I misheard you there, but uh, I know the first Raider battalion hit Tulagi on August seventh of forty-two. Unless that's strictly on the second Raider battalion, Carlson's Raiders.
1: Oh, mm. uh, ha- I was looking. I was flipping. Yeah, I was flipping through here, and I thought I had actually taken a photo. So that's why when you were talking, I was so rudely looking at my cell phone. I because when I was reading this, I was like, well, "Wait a minute, that makes sense." Um, but I'll have to find it, and we'll we'll re- we'll retouch on it next episode, but. Um, yeah,
2: for sure. Because First Raiders actually, First Raider Battalion, I think it was Baker Company that set foot first, they actually hit Tulagi, which was like a little Japanese seaplane float, float plane base or whatever, you know, just north of Guadalcanal. They actually hit yeah. Tulagi
1: no, you're right before be- First
2: Mardiv stepped foot on Guadalcanal. Yeah, they so burst of the first offensive yeah you're right, right. it would have been yeah. december
1: 15 1941 because we landed on Guadalcanal canal on august 7th 1942 so obviously right. december but yeah so yeah it would have been 1941 but but yeah it was just interesting that that was one of the things he pointed out was mm. inaccuracies and dates and things like that which once again probably not so much from the author but who the editorial and the publisher's job it is to to check things out like that but once again i think it was a great book i did reach out to the author she does have a book that you and Henry are probably interested in called the Coffin Corner Boys. And it's about the Army Air Corps. Um, ah. So that would be a pretty would good that need one. Would be the Low Squadron Group? Um, Probably. I just When I was going to the publisher trying to get contact information to book her on the show, it just showed the Marine um, Raiders book and then that one. I'm Googling it well, right now.
2: Yeah, and I forgot to mention, I keep forgetting about just strictly our audio listeners and not people watching. Yeah. I held this book up the whole time I was talking about it, but it's Brotherhood of Heroes, The Marines at Paley 1944, The Bloodiest Battle of the Pacific War by Bill Sloan, who is uh, right down the road from you here in Dallas, mm-hmm. Texas. Uh, so yeah, that, did, was the, uh, that was the Did mention, I mention,
0: you and I talked about that, I thought, did I, did I mention in 2006, I went out to visit Bergen and we got to talking because I think that around then was when Bill was putting that book out. And uh he Bergen got him on the phone. I talked to him briefly. So no, we, I don't we think we had a nice conversation. I'm,
3: yeah. I'm assuming everybody's read this book.
1: What is that? Duty
3: by Bob Green. It's about Paul Tibbets.
1: No, I have not read that uh, book. I, I oh, have not read
3: that. This is a fantastic absolute must read it's it's bob green the journalist his dad was neighbors with paul tibbets and he basically got to sit down and talk to him uh for anybody that's listening that doesn't know he was the the pilot of the enola gay that ended the war but that's a great wow. book if you guys haven't read that
1: yeah with want to add it to the list but go ahead jeff you can uh you were getting ready to take your conversation elsewhere but i wanted to put a fine point on it because of the The inaccuracy I want to bring up.
2: No, 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 that's it. No, I just wanted to make sure I mentioned the title for for the audio listeners. But, yeah, Henry, what do you
0: got? What are you reading? I was thinking, you know, when Don texted me and said, hey, we've done some Pacific stuff. Why don't you and Jeff uh, jump in there and do something on the Army Air Corps? Um, You know, I got to thinking about it. We talk about Guadalcanal and how can you not, but August of 42, as we just said, I went back and reread the Osprey book. Jeff, you know, we talk about how much we like the Osprey series books on B 17 units of the Eighth Air Force. And of course, I'm in the middle of reading Strong Men Armed. When, when Don said, hey, let's do something, let's talk about Army Air Force stuff, I quickly took a side tour and, and reread the Osprey book on B 17s. I didn't know that it was August of 42 when they started daylight bombing in, in Germany, well, from England to France first. Right. But so, two cataclysmic offensive starting off in August of 1942 mm-hmm. uh going you know just going through that and, and also because Mike brought up Paul Tibbetts um his name came up several times because he was just a you know a young officer riding right seat in some of those first missions
2: yeah he was B-17s for the 29s for sure yeah so yeah.
0: But, I mean, you know, to think about, and the B-17 offensive is something that's always been really fascinating to me. I mean, that was really our first chance to start hitting back, you know, in the European theater. And the Collins Foundation had a B-17 that they flew in here to the Birmingham area. It was 909. It actually crashed a few years ago, and tragically, several people died in that accident. But I walked through that airplane more than once when they brought it here. And, you know, you think about, people say, well, the B-17 was, a you know, the flying fortress. I mean, it's iconic. And I guess it was a big airplane. But, man, when you get inside the fuselage of that <laughs> thing, and you, yeah, when you think about being trussed up in all your flight gear and with a parachute, chest pack, bat, whatever, and you're in there with all your, as a waste gunner, you know, imagine Focke Wolf 190 is just raining down on you, putting, you know, millimeter machine gun fire, what 7.9 millimeter, whatever they had 20 millimeter cannon rounds. I mean, it just had to be absolutely horrific to, to live through a mission in one of those things,
1: much like a submarine or tank for that matter. There's nowhere to go. Yeah, and and it's a flying fortress when you're five three and eighty seven pounds. But and I was gonna say at the mic, I'm sure your grandfather's probably a, a short fella because um I know the guys who run World War II armor down here, and me me being six foot five, I can't fit in those tanks. So uh, it's yeah. definitely a uh, definitely a tight squeeze.
3: Yeah, he's he's I think he was five ten, five eleven. Well, okay, same, well same height
0: as me. Was well, he in M fours?
3: I don't know that. I'll have to ask for you.
1: I'm going to do a, we're going to change things up here real quickly. I'm going to take a, something I do on the what's in your head podcast. When we do movies reviews in my computer uh, office and in here, I have a Roku TV. And so I'm at the shot and working on computers. I just turn on Roku and I'm finding a lot of world war two movies. Uh, one, I just started watching. I'll talk about next week. And it's actually a, it's actually a movie that has Ethan Hawke and a young Gary Sinise before Save Private Ryan. Um, it's an interesting movie, but I don't, I don't know if I talked. did I talk about When Trumpets Fade on this podcast? I don't think I did. I haven't heard you. I think I might've brought up the Jeff, but anyhow, I was on a Roku yeah. and um, I'll just, I'll just play it and then I'll get into it. Oh, sorry about that. I'm trying to, Dude. For those you don't know, that's the Roku sound effect. So, <laughs> 1998. He was
3: a reluctant soldier. If I can help you in any way without endangering my own life, I won't hesitate. But I'm not taking a bullet for
0: anybody. That's not good
2: enough. That's as good as it gets. A reluctant
1: leader. Congratulations, Privateer Sergeant. <laughs> I am absolutely the wrong man. You managed to stay alive for a week. That's something the rest of your platoon couldn't do. Call me crazy, but from where I'm standing, that makes you qualified for the job. But in the heat of battle,
3: he became a reluctant
1: hero. You're gonna make it! You can do this.
0: Even when the glory of war fades into the horror of battle, an ordinary man can become a hero. Going
1: on, Bobby? Going
0: HBO Home Video presents an epic true story. When trumpets fade. What you mean, Warren? Welcome to Death Factory, Warren. From director John Irvin of Hamburger Hill and the Dogs of War comes the movie The Washington Post called First Class. Powerful, suspenseful, and shattered. Masterful, said Variety. A war picture that earns its stripes, declared People Weekly. When Trumpets play, starring Ron Eldon, of Deep Impact and The Last Summer, Frank Whaley of Broken Arrow and Pulp Fiction.
1: 1998 HBO television movie, directed by John Irving, as you just heard. Um. Keep in mind, Band of Brothers came out in two thousand one, so this is nineteen ninety eight. This movie is so old that at the beginning, it's HBO New York Productions, not even HBO. Wow. I don't know where this thing was shot. Um, maybe somewhere in the woods in New York. It's super raw. Um, it's very, it's like I said, it's super raw. It doesn't hold back on the horrors of war. Interestingly enough, one of the actors who doesn't get even a film credit is Timothy Obathet, who you guys probably know from Deadwood as Sheriff Bullock and um, Justified. Didn't do a great acting job in this, but it's interesting to see him at like 19. Um, This movie is it's. It's really, it's good. I, I don't want to say it's a, a great World War II movie, but it's a good World War II movie They probably probably don't know anything about. But here's just a quick plot. Uh, Private Dan, David Manning is a soldier of the 28th Infantry Division. And as a result of his horrendous fighting in the Battle of Hurricane Forest, he is the sole survivor of his platoon. Manning is assigned to lead a squad of green replacements and promoted to sergeant. He tries to get out of it, saying he's unqualified for the position. But his company commander, Captain Roy Pritchett, thinks otherwise Manning tries to back out of the responsibility by asking to be discharged under section eight. And, um, one of the plots of the movie is his commander said, fine. If you take these guys, go up here and take out the eighty-eights. When you get back, I'll give you your section eight unbeknownst to him. That commander dies during the attack. So he didn't get his section eight, but there's a flamethrower scene in this movie. And as Jeff knows, he's worked very close with flamethrowers. This is 1998. This isn't CGI computers. Um, this had, this had been a huge budget for HBO, um, because the battle scenes, they got explosions going off. They have tree bursts that rival band of brothers. And this is a few years beforehand. I mean, it almost looked like they put cameras in the woods in New York and had a demolition expert come strap some dynamite to these trees and just blow the living hell out of them. Um, like I said, the plots it's supposed to be based on a true story. Uh, I won't get into some of the uniform things that drive living historians crazy. Uh, look past that. But if you guys have Roku and you're looking for a movie that you probably never seen um, and it's inter- it's nice to see a movie with a, a plot around herkin forest. It doesn't get brought up a lot, in movies too much. And the, and plus the idea that this was put out by HBO just a sh- few short years before they started production on band of brothers. It's a raw rugged movie. Um, the, I want to say special effects, but the pyrotechnic, the battles, the it's it's pretty good. So if, if you're looking for just something to watch when nothing else is on, and you have Roku, or I'm sure you can find it elsewhere, but it's called When Trumpets Fade. It was interesting enough that um, I would watch it a second time. But to me, it's just interesting of how it was made because nowadays with all these all these movies, regardless of World War II, they rely <coughs> so heavily on computer graphics, and this was just. Old-fashioned, going out in the woods, and let's just blow shit up and film a, a, a military movie.
0: Don, I'm with you on, I mean, the Hurtgen Forest. I've, I've read several books on that. And To me, of course, you know, obviously the Ardennes, Battle of the Bulge. I mean, that takes a huge amount of attention, as it should. But, man, Hurtgen Forest was a killing field.
1: Now, Jeff, you've worked around flamethrowers. You know the heat they put off. This scene, this cat is running the actor, not even a stuntman. Cause they basically have the camera on one of those tracks and then they're just running as he's running full force, just spraying the shit out of the set with this flamethrower. I mean, I don't know what the, uh, lawyers are thinking, but just the flamethrower scene in itself is crazy. And of course, once again, this is 1998. And so they have stuntmen covered in the flammable gel running on fire instead of the computer graphics. This movie is raw and rugged and you definitely might want to check it out.
2: I, I, I've I been trying to bite my tongue since you've been talking about it. I've seen this movie. I I, I cringe hearing you talk about this movie like it's good.
1: I didn't say it's a great <laughs> movie. I said it's an interesting <laughs> Raw movie for, uh, to see it, that HBO put oh, out. I didn't say it's a it great hurts. movie.
2: It's hurting my heart to hear this. Um,
1: When's the last that, time you've seen it, so,
2: though? Oh, Not that long ago. Um, probably last year sometime,
1: you know, the thing yeah. that drove me absolute effing crazy. And like I said, I, I, I'm not saying it's a fantastic movie. I'm just saying it's an interesting raw movie. The one thing that drove me absolutely crazy, I don't know who the wardrobe department guy is, but the fact that everybody had Jeep caps on backwards, even when they didn't have their helmets on and they weren't even real Jeep caps with the, like, they were like, prop made one so instead of having the ear flaps they just had like the lines. so but they all had them backwards and they look like robin hood hats <laughs> Just just me.
2: this is what i'll say about this because they're yeah i mean besides all of that stuff you know it, whatever i look past a lot of that you know i try to unless we bring it up on purpose but i try to look past a lot of that stuff what this movie reminds me of is it's just a bunch of civilians that wanted to it's almost like this movie should be like more like Vietnam with yeah. a lot more like artistic license to just catch stuff on fire, blow stuff up <laughs> That's exactly what it was. a thousand times and not really the, the, the plot is,
1: it's I mean, weak. it's a good
2: enough plot. I think it's a good enough story, but you're, you're not going to learn anything
1: at all. No, Not about, at all. I mean,
2: it, it's just like, they, they took a, a Vietnam context civilian based film and set it in the hurricane forest yeah. almost like they would um never heard of that let's pick that as our location
1: <laughs> like I said I said it was a raw movie and it, it's interesting to see that it's something HBO uh, did before Band of Brothers I never said it was a great movie but it's just something to check out if you you want a, a good laugh like I said Timothy ofek yeah. his acting was horrible in that and the fact that he went on to do d- Deadwood right. and and, and I justified like that guy. I, I like, like him too. He's
2: done some great voiceover work too. I mean, the guy, he's very talented. I, I do like him as an actor and that, you know, you got to start somewhere, I guess. Um, yeah, I, Henry, watch that movie. <laughs> and then Let's talk about it.
1: <laughs> but you have to admit, like I said, when they're doing the tree birth, like you said, it, it definitely looks like when, when all the shellings coming in and, and they're blowing crap up, it does look very, uh, hamburger Hill or platoonish, And, uh, but like the, it was just I don't know. I saw it. I watched. It, I'm like, wow, this is it's rugged and raw, and and yeah, it's just it, interesting to see how far HBO came in those sh- few short years between that and Band of Brothers.
2: And isn't it? Wasn't it directed? Wasn't it the same director as Hamburger Hill? Yes, or, it, or, it was. Or which,
1: yes, which would go to your um, thing about the uh, yeah, it looking like a Vietnam it, flick.
2: It, it's a it's another Hamburger Hill, which was a pretty decent movie. Just with dudes in World War II
1: uniforms. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Anyway.
2: Cool. (laughs) 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 I'll go watch Thin Red Line again. I I would if
1: I could find it for free. I'm not paying the $3 to watch Netflix. (laughs) Mike, have you ever seen The Thin Red Line? Okay, don't
2: i have not you're good you're good it's
1: the most disappointing guadalcanal based movie out there but the joke is henry henry's a fan of it
0: you know Uh i mean the look they actually did film some of it on guadalcanal
3: cool i've I've only seen the big ones saving private ryan band of brothers you know the fury Fury. i did Did see that i did see that
1: well the fact that it had Sean Penn in it, Michael Rapaport, uh Nick, Nick Nolte, it had a star studded cast, but just like the storyline, you're like, What is this?
0: No, I I believe me, it took it's an acquired taste. <laughs> Nineteen
1: ninety eight. I guess Yeah, it came I, out the same year as saving private Ryan. It also came out the same year as when Trump had fade, so I guess it's definitely a more substantial I, move. I don't, I don't know, know if private I've seen Ryan's when Trump fade or not. What's that?
2: I thought Saving Private Ryan was 96. It's 98. No, 98.
1: Really? 98. Yeah. I'm learning a thin red line. I can tell you for a fact it's 1998. Saving Private
0: Ryan. Because Saving oh. Private Ryan got all the attention, which it should have. Yeah,
3: 1998. A- yep. Yeah.
0: Better movie, but...
3: Schindler's List, too. That was good. Yeah.
1: I think that should be required watching in high school history. Absolutely. Schindler's List. They, they yeah. would never allow that? No. Especially now. <laughs> but definitely think that would should be um, required watching. Henry, do you got anything coming up that you want to plug? I know you're you uh, you are hitting the circuit a lot lately and uh, doing a lot of stuff here and there. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, just...
0: I'm going to be on Mitchell Bell's podcast, but you guys are too, right? Um, I, didn't he say October-ish, Jeff? Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna gonna be on
1: there.
0: He's going to have me and Scott Gibson, who played ACAT Caldane in the Pacific. Ah. He, we're going to be together on that. Um Taco and I talked for quite a while. It's been several weeks ago when this first got lined up because, you know, we had a lot to talk about. He was kind of pretty stoked about getting to to do this. But, um, yeah, the We Happy Few 506, we've got our next event coming up, and it will be a live event. That will be on uh, the first week of October. Um so that, that should be pretty cool. Uh, the guy who played the guy who played Baseline's best friend, Josh Bitten. He was on our, we had a Zoom meeting with him week before last and just kind of hashed some things out. He seems like a pretty cool guy.
1: So Is I he the one who played um, J.P. Morgan?
0: Yes, he played J.P. Morgan.
1: Yeah, I just saw him on an episode of Lucifer last night where he played a ATF sniper. I was like, that's a cat who played J.P. Morgan on the Pacific. Yeah,
0: really cool guy. I mean, he, you know, he wasn't even part of the Sledge story arc. Yeah. And yet, you know, I popped up and he's like, Henry, man, your dad's book was fantastic. It's so cool to meet you, you know. <laughs> is I'm he like, from Boston? Well, he's
1: got like the Boston. Is he from Boston? Where's he from?
0: Well, he's from New York, actually. Oh, okay. he, he lives in L.A. now, but he is, I think, originally from New York. I got gotcha. you. Really cool guy. So, And I think there are going to be a lot, a lot more people jumping on the uh, We Happy Few Pacific bandwagon. Um, I had a conversation with a guy, uh, and this is something I, I don't want to get into right now because I want to see where it goes. But to you especially, Jeff, if you like, you know, we, we love the World War II airplanes, so uh, I, may, I may have something to, and maybe even a potential guest to pursuant to that.
1: Sounds like a plan. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, definitely. Jeff, I mean, you're probably familiar. do you know where the concept of the twenty-one gun salute came from?
2: Oh man. Uh no, I couldn't I couldn't tell you off the top of my head.
1: There's a cool cat on TikTok, uh, named Preston. He does like these quick thirty second, one minute history lessons. And I heard this one and I didn't know this, and so I'm gonna play it for you guys real quick. It's like um it's 45 seconds long, but here's a quick 45-second lesson on the gun 21-gun uh, salute. It's going to start because it's playing, and then I'll replay it. So as a response, Here
3: the we 20, go. the 21-gun salute is often seen in military funerals and events around the world. It's got some cool history. Originally, it comes from the concept of placing yourself in an unarmed position as a sign of respect to those being honored. The version we know today, with 21 rounds being fired, started when warships would enter an enemy port. While they were still a ways from shore, the ships would fire off every one of their cannons, and they usually had seven. And with how long it took to reload, it was a way of saying, we come in peace. As a response, the shore batteries, which usually had more ammunition on hand, fired 21 rounds, three for every one coming from the ship. The 21-gun salute has since been adopted by countries all around the world as a sign of respect, from the United States to China, the United Kingdom to Russia, and quite a few more. So
1: that's interesting that these old naval ships when coming into an enemy port and they're saying, Hey, we're not here to fight. They would basically just unload all the guns at one time and say, Hey, here we are. We have no way to protect ourselves in the amount of time it would take to reload all these cannons. And so the port would do the same thing. They'd fire off all theirs. So now you have your enemy and it, two enemies with no loaded weapons. It's kind of a way to say, okay, let's have a peace talk. If you will.
0: That's pretty cool. I did not know that that's where it came from. I know, if you've ever heard of the Patrick O'Brien books, the Jack Aubrey books, it, it's Napoleonic Wars, eighteen you know, 1800s, Royal Navy sailing ships. So Master and Commander was based on those books, the movie with Russell Crowe. Sure, But they talk a lot about every time they sail into a foreign port based on the rank of the ship going in, they would fire a certain number of guns, and then it was expected that the fort would fire that many guns in return and it was like a big deal if they didn't like the Royal Navy would get extremely upset if they fired a salute and it was not returned.
1: Yeah. No. And I guess now you know why, because if they are not returning it, that means they got loaded armament pointing at you and they could take mm-hmm. you out if they so desired. But I think I'm, unless you guys have anything else cover I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the what's the Scuttlebutt podcast. You got anything you need to put out there, Jeff?
2: No, no. look forward to the next episode. Good seeing you guys again. Mike, thanks a lot for coming on and, and showing off some of your grandfather's stuff. That's a really cool uh, lineage that you've got there and heritage, and, and we appreciate you sharing it with us on our, on our podcast.
3: Thanks for having me, gentlemen.
0: Yeah, thanks, Mike.
1: Our pleasure, and as always, um, thank you to Jeff and Henry for doing what you're doing and uh, contributing to the show and helping making the show a more well-rounded show and see how many times I can say show in one sentence. We'll just top it off with one more. This is the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast show. Thank you guys so much for hanging out with us. And as always, this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is brought to you by our friends at computers. At Computers has been providing IT solutions for Southwest Florida since 2004 and the rest of the world since, well, I don't know, 2010. So even if you don't live in Southwest Florida, they can help you, as long as your internet works, of course. They can remote into your computer via their website with your instruction and help you with all your minor computer problems. And if you do live in Southwest Florida, then give them a call. They can help you with computer repair, laptop repair, anything technical-based, networks. Network expansion, Wi Fi, etc. Give them a call at 239 283 1120. And if you're watching this live stream or you're watching it on YouTube two days later, if you want one of those kick ass WTSP shirts like Jeff is wearing, head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com, click on our merch link, use the promo code listen. Yes, with inflation, the prices have gone up, but not by us, but by the people who make them. And uh, that I listen will basically save you uh, the shipping cost, and it'll help support the show because we want you to help get the word out, word of mouth. We have actually a pretty wide range of shirts on there, so please go check those out. And while you're on our website, if you want to help support the show and all the shows here on the Digital 410 Network, sign up for Patreon. It's only a dollar a month. There is a $7.50 a month plan. If you want to sign up for that, you'll get a free T-shirt after your second month. And uh, we oftentimes will give our OG five members. That's what we refer to the people on Patreon free stickers and what have you. And there's also an exclusive OG five podcast that is only behind the paywall. I got to get Jeff and Henry on there, but uh, we've got all the plugs out of the way. Thank you guys so much. And remember, if you're listening to us on Apple iTunes uh, or um, Apple podcasts, please give us a review. The higher the review, the higher the stars Apple will suggest to us, to other people who listen to history podcasts. So, We're uh, Henry, Jeff, and Mike. This is Don Abernathy, and we will talk to you all next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. (laughs) We're off the air. Boy, it was nice not to have to